Hello, and welcome to the first full episode of In Order 2, a podcast about interpreting the preamble to the Constitution as a vision for America. I'm your host, Michael Matthew, and I'm excited to share a topic with you today which is especially pertinent in the current context, voting. Where does this fit into the model outlined in the introductory episode, you may ask? Good question. Voting, in my mind, enables all of the principles outlined in the preamble, but is most profoundly impactful in the creation of a more perfect union. Now, for those of you who aren't Americans, or who are but would like a little refresher, I think it may be interesting for us to walk through the constitutional model of the elections in the United States. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution calls for each state to, quote, appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress, end quote. These electors then come together to vote. In all states, the popular vote within the state decides the voting of the electors. In two states, Nebraska and Maine, the electors may be apportioned, while in the rest, they go wholly to the winner of the state. If a candidate receives 270 electoral votes of the 538 available, then they are elected president. This differs significantly from many other forms of representative government, and does so because the United States is neither a direct democracy nor a parliamentary republic, but instead its own model of federal constitutional republic. For example, the executive and legislature in the United States are designed to be further apart than in most other countries with the executive being responsible for enacting the will of the legislature, but able to act in its own way within the bounds of the legislature's words. The intent apparently wasn't always this way. Sources definitely vary on this, but Alexis de Tocqueville, in his 1835 work Democracy in America, states that the objective of the founders was not originally this model, but instead, quote, their object was to find the mode of election which would best express the choice of the people, with the least possible excitement and suspense. It was admitted in the first place that the simple majority should be decisive, but the difficulty was to obtain this majority without the interval of delay, which it was most important to avoid." End quote. So, the direct democratic model was abandoned in the name of expediency, an issue which is no longer relevant due to modern technology. Let's get back to that topic later. Assuming the model of America's democracy is not one which can be negotiated, we come to the point of voting in and of itself. Voting for federal offices in America takes place on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Why is it on a Tuesday? Something archaic about church on Sunday, farmers markets on Wednesday, and needing to travel to the county seat and back in between, the argument for which is not particularly relevant today. I digress. In most elections, the majority of voters head to the polls, usually stationed in their local school's gymnasium or a similar building, in which they head to a small curtain booth, cast their votes via a machine or via a paper card, and then walk out and go about their day. In some places, this process can take a few minutes. I remember some voting trips for me being five minutes door-to-door -door in the past. In others, waiting in line can take hours, especially in blue-collar communities, immediately after work. Alternative methods of voting are to mail in an absentee ballot or to vote in person but early in states which allow it. To vote earlier via mail is typically not widely allowed, though rules are opening up on this. To give a bit of context, 
When sending in a mail-in ballot, as I have to do each election, one has to sign a sworn statement confirming their identity, as well as confirming that they have the right to vote and have not been unduly influenced in the placement of their vote. Every election, without fail, it seems like we discuss the same topics, namely, how to prove that the people who are voting are actually people who are allowed to vote. With the widespread use of mail-in ballots due to the current pandemic situation, we've run into an issue which hasn't been nearly as prominent in recent years, signature matching on absentee ballots. In counting mailed-in votes, signatures are compared to past signatures on record to validate whether or not the person who is voting is actually who they say they are. However, this is problematic in its own right. If someone breaks their hand, their signature will most definitely not match the signatures on record, but that shouldn't deny them the right to vote. A broken hand is not a loss of citizenship. Using signature matching to prove identity is most definitely not an example of inclusive design. Mail-in voting is not the only place where identity fraud is seen as a potentially significant issue. Even at the polls, it would theoretically be possible for someone to vote in place of someone else. To combat this, some argue for strict voter ID laws, as being required to show a valid ID card would make it much more difficult for someone to replace someone else in voting. This is, however, ignoring the implicit links between voter ID laws and voter disenfranchisement, especially disenfranchisement among poorer, predominantly minority communities. Why are voter ID laws a source of disenfranchisement, you may ask? In America, to prove one's identity tends to cost money. There is no free identity card, and no simple way to prove your identity. You must have the correct documents on hand, or pay a fee to get them, and you must pay a fee for the identity card itself. Sounds a bit ridiculous, right? What if you've never had the documents to prove your identity because you moved from your hometown and lost your birth certificate and social security card? Well, that's the crux of the disenfranchisement argument. These problems are more common than one would hope, especially in a country as advanced as the United States. There's no question in my mind that only citizens can and should be able to legally vote in our federal elections. However, there is also no question in my mind that every citizen should be able to vote without barriers. These two items become at odds when policies to validate citizenship get in the way of barrierless voting. Yeah, I think there is. Now, let's break this discussion into two parts. The first one is on proving the identity of a voter, and the second is on the act of voting in and of itself. On proving identity, voter ID laws would in theory be perfectly acceptable, or even preferred, if the burden of proving identity was placed on the federal government, not on the individual citizen. The reason for this is that some citizens who are indigent will never be able to prove their identities without the help of the government, but still must have all of the rights and privileges allotted to citizens, as has been found many times by the Supreme Court. This includes the right to vote. The reality of elections in the United States is that it's very difficult to manage voter identity because the federal government at any one moment has no idea exactly how many citizens the country has. Every 10 years, a decennial census is performed to count people by location for the purposes of representation. However, 
that is neither time efficient nor does it exactly sync to the citizenship counts, as the census count is meant to be of all persons, not all citizens. Now, there's an outstanding argument that the census should in some way ask the question, are you a citizen? But this would lead to a different kind of disenfranchisement, the disenfranchisement of non-citizen persons for the purposes of counting. Illegal immigrants, regardless of what one's thoughts are of their presence in America, are still persons. To exclude them from the census would be to deny them of their personhood and leave them open to becoming victims in a way which they currently are not. Yeah, okay, you can make the argument that everyone is responsible for their own actions, and if they are here illegally and have no legal protections, whatever happens to them is their fault. Somehow, the spilling of blood of an illegal immigrant doesn't in any way spark a sense of humanity in the people who make that argument. I don't get it, but there are people who think like that. People are people, no matter where they are from. Let's keep that clear. Back to the legal argument. At the end of the day, the Constitution has protections for all persons within its borders, whether they belong inside of them or not, until written otherwise in a way which clarifies the situation. We've even seen this with the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. They have been able to make constitutional arguments that they deserve the writ of habeas corpus, which is a right to persons within the borders, not a right to citizens. So it's clear on what the court thinks of this in general. There are also a significant number of citizens abroad who must be kept track of. Exhibit A, me, currently. Millions of Americans such as myself spend a significant portion of their lives overseas, either because they like to explore different cultures and climates, pursue job opportunities, or just want to live somewhere else. For the record, I'm a bit of A and B, exploring and working abroad. To sum all of this up, we've got a lot of citizens we have no idea who they are at any one time, and yet our systems rely on being able to differentiate between a citizen and a non-citizen. Tough chore. Once in a while, my background will pop into the podcast, as it should, you know, I'm not just here to give my opinion, I'm here to qualify it sometimes. I'm an engineer and a process evangelist by trade, so I'm going to go a very process-oriented route to propose a solution to this portion of the problem. In my mind, a national identity verification service of some sort is definitely the way to go. A request can be put in by any system to a central service which will flag back one of three options. Option A. Yeah, this person is a citizen, beyond a doubt. Option B. No, this person is not a citizen, beyond a doubt. Option C. We need more information to determine if this person is a citizen or not. The goal in optimizing the service would be to find the most accurate and efficient way to determine if someone is or is not a citizen, and to intervene in the cases of doubt in a systematic way to minimize the likelihood that it's an unclear outcome. Makes a lot of sense, hopefully. The backbone for the NIVS, as I'm going to call the National Identity Verification Service, is a set of databases which are linked to each other. The National Citizenship Registry would have an entry for every individual who is a citizen. It would be informed by the National Birth and Naturalization Registry and the National Death and Denunciation Registry, which would document actions of each. When a citizen has an entry into the birth and death registries, they would be marked as deceased in the citizenship registry. Hopefully that's still making sense to people. 
Alongside the NIVS is the National Identity Reclamation Office, a team responsible solely for helping individuals to recover their identities and to ensure that each identity can only be traced back to the individual in question. The goal here would be to minimize the number of reclamations required, which means working primarily to shore up the NIVS and surrounding processes so there is little question and loss of identity becomes rare. If these processes, or something similar, were implemented, then I could see voter identification as a viable step in the voting process. Paying the service, verify that someone's a citizen, enable voting if it's a yes, raise a doubt if it's a no, process their vote regardless but separately while confirmation is being completed, and do not end the tally until confirmations are completed, regardless of which direction they go in. Until then, it's way too likely that someone will be disenfranchised who shouldn't be, and it's better to have someone accidentally enfranchised and be able to vote when they shouldn't than it is to have the voice of someone who should be able to vote silenced. Very similar to innocent until proven guilty, where it's better to let a guilty person go than it is to put an innocent person behind bars. I think that voting is the same way. It's better to allow people to vote than to not allow people to vote as the default behavior. This brings us to the second part of the discussion, the act of voting in and of itself. If we make the presumption that identity is verifiable and verification is required, then issues with the act of voting are reduced significantly, and we turn to issues with counting and verification of votes. In my mind, there's no reason that anyone has to fill in paper ballots anymore. Paper verification is important, but there should never be a question as to the intent of the voter. The fact that we have ballot curing is absolutely insane. The fact that we have to go through and look at a little dot on a piece of paper and say, oh, this dot seems like it was filled in 80% of the way, that's probably the intent of the voter. Why do we even deal with that? It's the 21st century we have the technology to get past this. Voting needs to be nationally standardized in a way that is as straightforward as possible to prevent creative ballot design methods meant to damage one party like the kind that were used in Florida in 2000. I think everybody remembers that, right? So if we take away the paper and give it back once the person is done voting, because we're not getting rid of the paper, you want to be able to confirm votes, right? Where does that leave us? Voting machines, which are technically compromisable if hacked or could have buggy software, or online voting, which has the same potential issues. Now, if we look at these voting systems, the reality is that it's not really that big of a problem, but it's really overblown, and it makes people scared of the concept. So we need to find a way to get past those. Enter everybody's favorite technology. At least, like, four years ago. Two years ago. Something like that. Blockchain. When I lived in Barcelona a couple of years ago, I ran into a pretty cool startup. The name is Cytel, named after an ancient Greek encryption device for communications, which is wrapping a piece of parchment around a stick of a certain size to ensure that the message comes across horizontally, Cytel does elections. Their whole shtick is that they're trying to make voting and election tabulation more secure, in part by utilizing blockchain. Now, I find this technology to be fascinating. 
At one point during my MBA, I even considered applying to work for them. In 2019, they submitted a paper to the 12th International Conference on Theory and Practice of Electronic Governance. The paper was titled, Bringing Transparency and Trust to Elections, Using Blockchains for the Transmission and Tabulation of Results. Now, the paper overall sounds quite interesting, but the key part of it to me is that they're looking at ways to ensure that result tabulations find their way from source to count without being interrupted in any way, shape, or form. And they found that blockchain is a viable way to do this. As I'm not really at all an expert in the field of blockchain or voting tabulation, I'm going to say this sounds pretty good to me just in theory. I would love to see a voting concept where a person can submit their vote on a machine, get a little piece of paper that tells them, yes, your vote has counted, this is who you voted for, and also be able to traceably see all the way through the process in a way that no one else can identify that their vote has made it all the way into the final count and this is where it stacks up. I think that would be very important for everybody. The United States recently had an election, which I'm pretty sure just about everybody listening to this has heard about. During that election, there were countless cases all across the United States of voter fraud, quote-unquote, allegations thereof, at least. Now, no proof was ever presented for any of these allegations, just a series of remarks and heresy. But even in the lawsuits that were filed, None of the lawyers were willing to say that any fraud had occurred, because the reality was that there was no evidence. But what matters is the belief of the people, not the reality on the ground. If the people firmly believe that fraud has occurred, the people will cause problems related to that fraud. Right? People are saying, oh, the election was stolen, and therefore they will find a reason to stand up for the election that was stolen. Even if there's no evidence at all, they'll say, oh, it was hidden from us. Oh, there's a conspiracy. People love conspiracies. Now, I think that if we had something like a blockchain voting mechanism, where you could trace from source to target how your vote went, people would have a lot less questions, right? I mean, yes, okay, there would be people that would say, oh, I don't trust this technology. I don't trust any technology. I don't trust anyone that counts anything. Everybody's against me, and my vote should be the only one that matters. Those people don't particularly understand democracy. The reality is, is that voting, very easy. Counting voting, very hard. And we need to find a way that's scalable, that can manage counting voting, while still maintaining the people's belief in the integrity of the system. Currently, a significant portion of the population doesn't have any belief in that integrity. And I think that introducing a system like blockchain to that voting process would improve the integrity of the election significantly, even if it makes no actual change to the integrity of the elections, because people would be more willing to trust something that is technologically verified. Or maybe they wouldn't be willing to trust something that's technologically verified. I don't think there's actually a way to please everybody in this situation. So let's sum all of this up, because I think it would be good to have a conclusion here. Many people in the United States would like to have voter ID laws. I think even many of the people who are opposed to voter ID laws would like to have them if their concerns with them could be alleviated. The biggest one being the disenfranchisement concerns, right? We can't have 
poverty be something that excludes a citizen from being able to vote. That's just not okay. So if we can build a backbone to identity in America, which allows people's citizenship to be verified whenever necessary, we can then go through with enabling voter identity laws because there will no longer be something in the way of this. Poverty will no longer be an issue when it comes to somebody's citizenship. You'll be able to prove it no matter who you are, where you're from, or where you've lived. Now, as with all of this, personal opinion, but I think it would be very important to have that. Let's get voter identity laws, and let's get a centralized citizenship database that allows us to validate citizenships. Once identity is managed, the process of voting needs to evolve. Instead of filling in bubbles on a sheet of paper and hoping that your vote counts even though you accidentally, you know, made a mismark on the sheet or something like that, there should be a computer system. Something straightforward, something standardized, something that everyone uses the same way regardless of where in the United States they are, which enables voting to be handled centrally and in a traceable manner. Even better if it could be done via the internet, on your phone, anything like that, because citizens abroad shouldn't be disenfranchised for the simple fact that maybe they don't live next to an embassy. And I think mail-in voting, hmm, it works but there's better ways to do it, and I'm not sure if that's the solution for the future. So enter a concept like blockchain, which I still don't completely understand, but in general, the idea is that you should be able to trace from source to target where your votes come from, and the technology used with blockchain enables that. Citizens should be able to be verified as citizens, they should be able to vote, and they should be able to know where their vote went and how it was counted, at all times. There shouldn't ever be any questions in this chain of activities. I think the introduction of technology into the election system would definitely help with one concern that de Tocqueville raised, as I mentioned originally. The founders were concerned that a direct democracy would lead to far too much time between the act of voting and the actual implementation of the government. If you introduce technology to the counting process, that time moves towards zero. At that point, what is the real purpose behind this two-step election process? It only creates a possibility for corruption to enter the chain. So if we've eliminated the expediency concern, we can also eliminate the system borne by the expediency concern. There's no longer a need for an electoral college to speed up the time between the voting and the tabulation. Because what happens now is that the tabulation can be instantaneous, and a recount can take a very short period of time. We no longer need all of this time, all of this slack in the system. You can do it pretty much immediately. Therefore, arguments behind the Electoral College are getting weaker and weaker. And honestly, I think the chain of activities that we're talking about is currently being held responsible by the wrong people, or really the wrong government entity. Instead of the states being responsible individually for defining how elections should be run, the federal government should set a national standard. The federal government should set a national standard for identity. In general, these things should not be left up to individual states to determine how to manage. Because with things like voting and identity, you don't want to have a potential for variability. You're making decisions that are important to everybody. And if you allow one state to design their ballots one way, in such a way that perhaps Republican candidates are more prominent on the ballot like Florida did in 2000, then maybe we run into concerns where states can rig elections. We don't want that. At least, hopefully we don't want that. 
What I would like to see is I would like to see that identity and voting are entirely managed on a federal level. I would like to see this problem be taken out of the hands of the states and set nationally. Similar to how we manage the census. The census isn't something that's managed at a state level. The states aren't responsible for counting the persons. So why does the responsibility for voting and the responsibility for identity fall on the state governments? It's a standard that we want to follow nationwide. If we nationalize identity, nationalize voting standards, and make it so that we no longer have to worry about somebody who's too poor to pay for their identity card or to pay to go home to find their birth certificate, even though they don't exactly know where it could be. If we can guarantee that those people have the right to vote by managing this at a federal level, all of these problems go away and we can worry about more important issues. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Voting is important. Identity shouldn't be questionable. And I think we need to find a better way to manage this problem. The only way for us to really be a more perfect union is if we think about the things that are required for the union to operate and make those things more perfect. Because identity and voting are the bedrock of what makes a government operate, I really think we need to start there. My name is Michael Matthew, and you've been listening to In Order 2. Thank you for your time.